And hello and welcome to this week's special edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And as have been hearing all day here on the Nachum Siegel Network and all weekend and parts of the previous week, today is our special live coverage of the Israel election, the Israel national election. I know it's been three in one year, three in less than 11 months actually. Um, but it is election day and night again in Israel. And starting at 3 p.m. Eastern time today, and by that New York time, we will begin with our four hours of coverage of the Israel election results. We will analyze the results, and we'll also have some discussion about some of the major issues in the election there, the major issues between the United States and Israel, and the major issues between the United States Jewish community and the Israeli Jewish community and the Israeli government. There are going to be some... Very special guest joining us. I will be hosting. I, Jake Novak, will be hosting it, along with a, a co-anchor and producer, producer extraordinaire, uh, Mayor Fertig. Mayor Weingarten will be joining us as a frequent guest. He is the host of the Israel Show here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Rabbi Yotav Eliach, the author of the excellent book, I would say essential book for any American Jew, really. Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel by Yotav Eliach, E-L-I-A-C-H. The reason why I'm spelling that as, spelling his last name out is because I want everyone to buy that book on Amazon. It's a long book, but each and every chapter is a book in and of itself and worth the effort in every way. And it's not that much of an effort. It reads very quickly considering its length, and it is absolutely essential. And Yotav Eliach is the man who really began my formal Zionism education uh, from a seriously adult standpoint. Um, he was a young teacher at the Yeshiva Flatbush High School when I began there, and he was already beginning the writing of this book that finally came out uh, at the end of 2018. I think it was 2018. It might have been 2019 when the book came out. But it is still a new book and an important book, and um, – very delighted to have him on because he really understands the situation in Israel probably better than most people uh, could ever even hope to, let alone get there. Um, we'll be joined by Sarah Stern from the Emmet organization. We'll be joined by Shai Franklin. This, there will be some intellectual diversity on this group. This is not going to be a group that agrees with everything I say, and Shai Franklin is one of those people who doesn't agree with everything I say, or he, he doesn't agree with, disagree with everything I say, but Shai Franklin is uh, an important voice for some other sides of Israel, Israeli politics. Tal Heinrich, my former colleague at I-24 News, is uh, now working on a number of uh, projects. She'll actually be not only giving us her insight on the Israel election, but also reporting on some of the events of APAC. Shai Franklin will also be, by the way, calling in from APAC, so we'll have a number of different viewpoints on APAC. Uh, more special guests, including the Reverend Tony Crisp. Tony Crisp is one of the leading pro-Israel evangelical leaders, and he is in some ways in the tradition of Pastor John Hagee. Many of you know Pastor John Hagee. But Tony Crisp it represents a newer generation of evangelical supporters of Israel, and uh, when you talk about the U.S.-Israel relationship, one of the things that really gets either lost in the mix, sometimes people don't even mention the fact that it's really driven by evangelicals in this country, just by sheer numbers. Obviously, evangelical Christians outnumber Jews of every stripe in this country by, I guess, at least 10, 20 to 1, something like that. But also, they really have a tremendous push from a political standpoint 
uh, at least on the Republican Party. So either that's left out or very often evangelical Christian support for Israel is misconstrued. That's really the biggest problem. I think I can live without a reporter or a newspaper editor understanding that evangelical support for Israel is the biggest political factor. It's much more important than the Jewish political support just because of sheer numbers here. This is not an editorial commentary about Jewish voting trends or the importance of the Jewish vote. But what is even more common, what is not acceptable from my standpoint, is this unfair characterization of the motivations behind evangelical support for Israel. So Tony Chris will be joining us because not only to clarify some of that, but more importantly, just to give us an idea of what the evangelical community is looking at when they look at this election in Israel. If we only take a look at the election of Israel from the American Jewish standpoint, we're really missing a huge part of the story. Um, my friend and, and colleague Jim Nuzzo, who was an official in the first Bush administration White House, will be joining us. This is someone with medical expertise, legal expertise. The man graduated from Yale Medical School and Harvard Law School. How many people do that, right? I mean, so you would want to talk to a guy like that or a woman like that with that kind of pedigree, whether they were interested in Israel or not. But Jim is very interested and very well versed in the situation there and very well versed on certain things like the science of polling and that kind of data. So he'll be joining us as well. And this is just going to be a, a, a very strong and large group of very interesting people to listen to. And hopefully the news, though, will be the most interesting part of it as we give you the, the, the results as they come in. There is not going to be a lot of English language coverage of Israel election night. There will be a little bit here and there. Most of it will be in Hebrew, and you'll have to get some kind of hookup to an Israel Israeli station somehow. And, is, and you'll have to wade through the Hebrew if you're not a fluent Hebrew speaker. And even if you are a fluent Hebrew speaker, news Hebrew is not as easy, right? I mean, I, my Hebrew is, I, I can often feel very confident about my Hebrew until I start picking up an Israeli newspaper and then I get lost. Uh, it's a little bit better on TV because the pictures sometimes match what they're talking about and it'll help you in that case. But this time you won't have to do any kind of parsing. It'll be in English. This will be live English coverage for four straight hours. Nothing like it. I don't think there's everything, ever been anything like it here in the United States. So we're very excited about it. I, I'm getting flashbacks now to the election in the summer of 1981 and my parents driving me up to Camp Massad as the election results were coming in from Israel. And this was the second, you know, Menachem Begin had been prime minister for four years, so this was his re-election for, for lack of a better term. Of course, in a parliamentary democracy, you don't re-elect the prime minister exactly, you re-elect, you re-elect the party, you know how it goes. But I remember... Once every three hours or so, as we were driving up the East Coast, because I was living in Norfolk, Virginia at the time, we were driving all the way up to the Poconos, to Tannersville, where Mossad Aleph was. By the time, by the summer of 81, that was the last summer of all Mossad camps, so it was the only Mossad, but still known as Mossad Aleph to most most people. And we're driving up to Tannersville, New York, and uh, Tannersville, Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, Tannersville, Pennsylvania. And uh, every once, every two hours, I think it was a Canadian station we were picking up, and they were announcing that... Well, we don't have the final results, but it looks like labor has won. Of course, that was wrong. And uh, that's how I, uh, I, was, I was 10 and a half that summer. I was almost 11. And I was remembering that that was the beginning of my understanding that reporting on Israel elections it can be so inaccurate. So one of the things we're going to be really striving for is to give you an accurate report about the results and where they're coming in and not do too much um, mental gymnastics when it comes to that and just and, and, and stick to the numbers and stick to the facts and and all of that um so again 
Monday, March 2nd, if you were listening to this first run of Novak Now for this week here on the Nachum Siegel Network and not listening in the archives, if you're listening to its original broadcast, then it's just about four hours from now that this live, groundbreaking, historic coverage of the Israeli election with me, Jake Novak, Mayor Fertig, Mayor Weingarten, Rabbi Otav Eliach, Sarah Stern, Shai Franklin, Tal Heinrich, Jim Nuzzo, the Reverend Tony Crisp. It is going to be a cast of incredible knowledge, a, a, a group of really good guests, and I'm very excited to do this here on the Nachum Siegel Network. There will also probably be, for those of you who want to see what we look like, a Facebook Live and some kind of Twitter Periscope broadcast of this as well. And you know how it goes. If you've watched... Um, cable television news you've seen some shows or or if you watch like the yes network or some of these sports networks you've seen shows where they put a camera a live camera steady camera in a in a radio studio so it'll kind of look like that it won't be uh, all the bells and whistles that you see in a television network but you'll be able to get an idea of of how we're working and and what we're doing so again three o'clock this afternoon new york eastern time 3 p.m eastern time that is, by the way, why are we starting at 3 p.m.? Because that is when the polls close in Israel, and that's when we can start really looking at the results and talking about it, talk about it in a responsible way. You don't want to start – and not that we would get the results anyway, but they don't start announcing results or some of the early vote returns until the voting is over, which is the ethical thing to do. So that is what we're going to be doing. I, w- I want to talk about, for the remainder of this Novak Now program, our – is really where I'm coming from and how I'm analyzing this third election and some of the big things that I've learned since the second election <laughs> and really try to put into context what I'm expecting with the full disclaimer that I may be wrong. Uh, not in, I think, the trends that I'm noticing and the facts that I'm going to be giving you. Th- those the historic facts especially will be correct, I promise. You can check me on the internet or Wikipedia or whatever you, you trust to, when, when it comes to historical facts. But I, what I, my disclaimer is that what I think is going to happen in this election, which I will say towards the end of this broadcast, uh, that might be wrong. Uh, I, I, you know, you can't get into this business of predicting elections and talking about what you think is going to happen unless you realize you better you best start realizing that you could be wrong pretty soon or you're going to be really bad at it. So, but I do want to talk about some of the things I'm seeing. I'll start with stuff that isn't predictive, that is just fact based, and. Um, I think the biggest issue in this election, and I'll start with the biggest thing, and I'll talk and I'll put it into a historical context. In an historical context, that both I think Israelis and certainly Americans of a certain age will, will understand. But what we have seen over these last three elections now—I mean, this is the third election cycle, obviously in eleven months, because there's been an inability to form a coalition. So there's a there's a Peshat and Drash on this. For those of you who know what, what Peshat and Drash is, there's the on-the-surface understanding of this, and there's a deeper meaning for this. The on-the-surface explanation for this third election is pretty simple. It's Avigdor Lieberman. Avigdor Lieberman is one of the leaders of one of the several right-wing parties in Israel, but it is a unique right-wing party in, the, in, that, in two ways. One, it is a secular right-wing party. It is not a right-wing party that really allies with, you know, aligns itself with a, a Jewish traditional religious life. And The second thing about it is actually connected to the first. It is mostly a party supported by Russian Jewish immigrants to the state of Israel. So it is a right-wing party because most of those Russian Jewish immigrants are to the right politically. They are conservative politically, not religiously. Most of them are secular. Not all, but most of them are secular. And Avigdor Lieberman is their leader. He is one of them. 
And he has had tremendous sway over these elections because he refuses to join with Netanyahu in any kind of coalition, which after the results of the last two elections would have resulted in a ruling coalition until he gets certain things that he wants. And from what we've been told that he wants, you never know. Sometimes they might be demanding things in politics that we don't know about. But what we're told, the two things that Lieberman really wants – from Netanyahu, that Netanyahu either has not been willing to give him or been willing to give him at the level that Lieberman wants, and this is why we keep going back to elections, is first, Lieberman wants a Haredi draft bill passed in the Knesset. He wants a bill that would require ultra-Orthodox men to be drafted into the Israeli army defense forces the same as everyone else, drafted through the Knesset. And you've heard me on a number of occasions here on Novak now talk about the foolishness of that. I do believe that the Haredim must get more involved in all aspects of Israeli life. And the military is one of them. But I don't believe the draft is the right way to go, and there are many reasons for that, not the least of which being that that their numbers really aren't needed. This isn't a manpower problem that the IDF is having right now. The IDF doesn't have that kind of an issue. But the Haredi community does need to get more involved in the economy of Israel. They cannot continue to be such a drag on the welfare state of Israel. And as you've heard me say many times here on the Novak Now program, while the universities in Israel are pretty good, they should be better, and that's a, I can do an entire different program on that, the path to success in Israel really runs through the IDF for many reasons, for technical reasons, for skill reasons, and for social reasons. And if you aren't a part of the IDF, it's very hard to succeed in Israel. It's very hard to succeed even if you leave Israel as an adult, if you haven't had the time in the IDF. Not everyone can be like Bar Raffaele, you know, the supermodel who didn't do her military service. Most Israelis, male or female, if they're going to be successful either in Israel or outside of Israel, really need to be in the IDF and do their service there. And there are a lot of reasons for that. So I really, I understand where Lieberman is coming from. I understand that the Russian secular Jews are angry that they have a burden of sending their children into the IDF and into harm's way that the ultra-Orthodox Jews don't. But of course, they get a lot more out of it for one thing. And second of all, a mass draft of the Haredi Jews would not do the IDF any favors, would not do the society of any favors. However, I do believe there is an evolutionary process towards getting more of the Haredim into the IDF. But as long as these draft bill is hanging over their head, they are going to resist any kind of evolutionary process to get more involved in national service, whether it's straight-up IDF service, whether it's working at some other level of uh, in, in the municipal part of Israel, all those things, it's counterproductive. And I know where Lieberman is coming from, and I agree with a lot of the sentiment behind where he's coming from, but it's the wrong way to go. The other thing that Lieberman has been holding over Netanyahu's head, and one of the reasons why he has not been willing to join in a coalition government after these last couple of elections, and the reason why he forced elections way back in April of 2019, which started this whole process, is because he wants some kind of major engagement invasion, attack, full-blown clearing out of Gaza. Now, that is something for the military commanders to decide, and I understand the arguments for and against that. I just don't know if it's proper for a politician, political leader of a party who is not himself a general or has never been a general himself, although Avigdor Lieberman has been defense minister, but I just don't know if it's proper for a leader of a political party in Israel to make a demand for some kind of full-flown full deployment of Israeli forces into Gaza or anywhere. I don't think that that's 
proper also. So again, while Lieberman has, if we were just arguing this in a college classroom or even in a, in a war room or in a strategic cabinet meeting, or, you know, security cabinet meeting in Israel, I think some of these points would be absolutely valid and strong. But what he's trying to execute is, I think, not valid and I think not strong. I don't think it's worth executing a Haredi draft. I don't think it's worth executing a full-flown invasion of Gaza just because you've made a political demand for it. I don't think that that's the way it should work. And so, and there are people who are much more critical of Avigdor Lieberman than I am. Uh, Mark Levin, the extremely popular radio talk, talk radio host here in the United States and tremendous supporter of Israel and tremendous supporter of Prime Minister Netanyahu, has called Lieberman a Svengali, basically a troublemaker, someone who's trying to be a, 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 man, a, a man behind the curtain, power behind the, the throne type of guy, drunk with his own potential power. And I think that, listen, any, every politician in some way or another often fits that bill. So I'm not throwing that possibility out either. I'm not. It's, it's, it's quite possible that's what's going on with Lieberman. But that's why we're having these elections. But what's happened during this whole Lieberman-Netanyahu brouhaha has been this creation of another party within Israel that has tried to engulf and encompass all the anti-Netanyahu sentiment in the country. And when you've been prime minister for 10 plus years, going on 11 years in a row now, like Netanyahu has, not including the three years he was prime minister in the late, mid to late 90s, well, that's just natural that there are going to be forces within the country and people within the country that have had enough already. And that, of course, is the way that we can describe the Blue and White Party, which was hastily put together before that first election in this three-election cycle. Back in uh, that, that first election in this cycle was in April. I believe the Blue and White Party was created sometime in February of 2019. I mean, really close before the April elections of 2019. They hastily put together a leadership list. There were some people from all over the place put together at that top of that list, people who were formerly Likud, people who were former Labor Party, all over the, basically just an absolute conglomeration of everyone who wanted Netanyahu out. And that's the Blue and White Party. And despite now it being almost a year since their first run and, and a year since their, more than a year now since their beginning of their, of their creation as a party, the Blue and White Party, we still haven't seen anything from that party that resembles any kind of branding or policy list that, that sets them apart. The only thing that sets them apart is that they are the anti-Netanyahu party. And time and again, Benny Gantz, who has become the leader of that party, remember at the beginning when the party was put together, he was the co-leader along with Yair Lapid, who seven years ago was very popular in Israel and then became very unpopular very quickly. And for some reason, he still managed to find his way up to the leadership level of a, of a national party that had you know, a lot of support, I was surprised. But I guess people felt, well, this is a guy who has experience with Netanyahu and maybe he'll help defeat him. But now Gantz is the sole leader of that party at the top. He's had more than a year now really to get used to this. And we're still not seeing anything from him or anything from the party itself other than the only, thing, the only consistent thing that that party has brought to us is anti-Netanyahu sentiment. This is the anti-Netanyahu party. And there have been times, especially during this indictment process with Netanyahu, his trial is going to begin later this month. Apparently, no matter what happens in the election. And there have been times where that works for them more than, more than others. The latest polls seem to be indicating, and again, these polls are so 
misleading in Israel sometimes and so hard to read sometimes. But the last series of polls does seem to be showing a little bit more of a shift towards Likud and a possibility that somehow maybe Netanyahu could form a coalition, somehow, especially if Lieberman doesn't do as well. Lieberman got five seats after the April elections. He got eight seats after the September elections. I think that if he falls between, he gets between, he gets either five or six seats in this election, then that would be really good news for Netanyahu because it would it would show a weakened Lieberman. I think at seven, it's not much, of, it's not too much of a demotion. So there's a problem there. But my point is that the blue and white party throughout all this process has just been the anti-Netanyahu party. I mean, if you can ask, if you can really ask yourself what else they offer that's new to the table, it's really minor stuff. Yesterday at the APAC policy conference, Benny Gantz gave a short eight-minute address live from Israel. He, it's too close to the election for anybody to, to be at the APAC um, conference in person, any of these major candidates to be there this time. And he alluded a little bit to, sounded like he was going really close to calling Benjamin Netanyahu a racist, which is really unfortunate because that's what you know Bernie Sanders has been saying recently and repeating recently. And, and, and that was the beginning of Gantz's speech, which wasn't so great. And then he heaped a lot of praise on Donald Trump at the end, which got the biggest applause in the room, especially when he praised the peace plan, the deal of the century plan from the Trump administration. That got the biggest applause in the APAC uh, conference. In the middle there, though, he, he talked about some of the things that I think set him apart in policy from Netanyahu, and it was really minor stuff. He talked about, for example, opening up the, the Western Wall to non-Orthodox prayer groups, which is something that Netanyahu wanted to deliver to those groups. He was unable to do it because the ultra-Orthodox parties just would not bend, and Netanyahu needs their support to remain as prime minister. It was a purely political decision. I don't think it was personal. I don't think Netanyahu is the kind of guy who is that devoutly religious that he cares so much about whether reform or conservative Jews and, and with women leading prayers and such really bothers him personally. Um... Gantz, again, made the promise to open that up. And again, good luck with that. I don't, I don't know how he forms a, a, a government without some of the religious parties, and they would bolt over something like that, frankly. They're, that's just the kind of thing they would do. So, But even that is a small issue, folks. Look, it's a minor issue. And I apologize to people who have been making that their life's work to try to get that kind of access to the Western Wall, to the Kotel. I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle your efforts. But look, understand that in the bigger picture of, a national, of national politics, that's a small issue. So what you've got in Israel is you have the anti-Netanyahu forces trying to coalesce into enough seats, enough support to be able to form a government, and they haven't been able to do it. And then you have the traditional center-right majority in Israel holding, as it always has, at about 60% of the population when you don't count the Arab vote. But they've been unable to get together because of Lieberman. Lieberman refuses to sit down and to make these deals because of the issues that I mentioned earlier. So that's why we're at this impasse, and the only way we're going to break this impasse is if, for example, Likud wins a lot more seats than people expect, or if Yisrael Beitenu, that's a, a Vigdor Lieberman's party, wins fewer seats than people expect, or some of these further-to-the-right parties win more seats than people do expect, and then that gives uh, Netanyahu and Likud a, little, a, a coalition, uh, either majority or darn close to it, so close to it that, that maybe they'll finally get some concessions and they'll make a deal. I want to talk about something that some folks who know your American history will, will understand. 
And this leads into my potential, as close to a prediction as I can make for this very unpredictable election process. This election process here in in Israel or there in Israel over this last 11 months has really started to remind me of what I've learned and studied and analyzed for many years about the 1948 presidential election in this country. 1948, a pretty important year for both the United States and Israel. Israel, of course, is born in 1948. But in 1948, Harry Truman is running for election. I wouldn't say re-election because, of course, he's president because of the death of Franklin Roosevelt just months after he became vice president. So Harry Truman has pretty much filled all of what would have been FDR's fourth term because FDR dies in April of 1945, just a couple of months after he's inaugurated for that fourth term. And Harry Truman not only sees out the end of the war, but he's, he's president all the way through 1948, no matter what, and he decides he's going to run for a term in his own right. Now, Truman, by 1946, certainly by 1947, has become unpopular. People I know who were living at that time, especially my father, who was a very young man, he was a very young little boy at the time, he was only six or seven years old, but he remembers very, very well the way that Truman was attacked in the news media at the time. Certainly, uh, you know, spoiler alert, he wins the 1948 election, so my father also remembers how he was attacked in his second term. And he ends up really looking like he's going to have an uphill battle in 1948 because everybody's running against him. He has a traditional Republican opponent in Thomas Dewey who would run against FDR in 1944, and in those days, losing a national presidential election wasn't the kiss of death that it is now. So Dewey is renominated in 1948. He was the governor of New York. Yes, they had Republican governors of New York once upon a time, and Thomas Dewey was one of them. By today's standards, he would be very, much closer to a Democrat. He was kind of a, a liberal-type Republican in many ways. He's running against him. He's got Strom Thurmond, the far-right Democrat, basically supporting the old Dixiecrat types, pro-Ku Klux Klan types, if you, if, if, you, know, if you have to cut it that way, anti desegregation, anti-integration, anti-civil rights group. He, he decides to split from the Democrats and run against President Truman. And there's still yet another candidate who's running, former Vice President Henry Wallace, who was Vice President before Truman was Vice President. When Truman was made Vice President, uh, FDR had Henry Wallace switch to the Commerce Secretary position. Truman liked Wallace personally and keeps him on in the administration as Commerce Secretary until he starts making some pro-Soviet speeches in the, in, the, in the first couple of years of after the war, and Truman has to get rid of him. So all these people are running against Truman, and there seems to be... And, and, and when you look at them very carefully, and what I think has got a very big similarity to what Netanyahu is going through here, is you can really look at them very carefully, and sure, Strom Thurmond has got the anti-civil rights thing. And Henry Wallace has a more pro-socialist message, too. And Thomas Dewey is maybe trying to force the country back into a little bit more pro-business stance. So you could say they all had policies, certainly more descript- distinct policies than a Benny Gantz has, that's for sure. But for the most part, they are running against Truman. And I'm not just saying that as a matter of fact. That's their, that's their whole MO. They're anti-Truman. And after a while, because, because Dewey has a huge lead in the polls at, at the beginning of the race, after a while the public looks at it and says, you know what, there's really not enough here policy-wise, to get me excited, other than this guy doesn't like Truman. And Truman ends up winning this election, and it's a surprise to all the supposed pundits. Not only does he win, but he wins by a lot in the Electoral College. He got more than 300 Electoral College votes, despite the fact that he's running against everybody, including the kitchen sink. 
And I think that this might be what happens now with Benjamin Netanyahu. After this third election now, what I'm seeing in the polls now, it's possible that a key swing vote among the Israeli voters are starting to see that everything that Netanyahu is facing right now is just personal. It shouldn't happen in a parliamentary democracy, right? When you're in a parliamentary democracy, you should just be voting for the party and the policies. But that's not the way humans work. And I think Israelis are beginning to see that this is just an anti-Netanyahu personal thing, and it's not enough to stake the future of Israel on that alone. Join us today at 3 p.m. for our live election coverage. This is Jake Novak. This is Novak Now. I'll see you at 3 p.m.